I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, we've got a, a couple or three Bibles left if anybody needs one. Um, we're, we're in the middle of uh, picking up a few more. So, uh, But if anybody does, we've got a couple. Anybody need a Bible just to kind of follow along with where we're going? Uh, can one of you guys, maybe Paul, give me a, uh, a hand with that? Uh, raise your hand again. Yeah, right, right there. About a third of the way back. Two-thirds of the way back. Right in the aisle. Yeah. You got it? Got it. Nope. We have one more. Got it. Okay. We're on page uh, 823, uh, Mark chapter 10. The reason I think it's important for you to have a Bible today is we're going to be dealing with a pretty significant chunk of Scripture, so you're going to kind of need the program to see who the players are, uh, and, and this will kind of help sort that out. And also because I think it's important for us, uh, especially uh, to kind of become more and more and more people of the book, not just on Sunday when we're hearing sermons, but hopefully you'll take that with you and having underlined stuff or written notes in the margin or something, made it yours so that it, it can begin to, to shape and form and frame the way that you look at, at the world and yourself that's going to be really important as we as we sit with this. Um, today we're going to kind of finish up a, a section of the Gospel of Mark. That's one of the reasons why we're taking such a, a huge chunk of it. Um, and uh, kind of end this kind of journey in Mark for, for this period of time. We're going to come back to it and finish it out in the new year. Uh, but in the next few weeks we're going to just kind of take a, a bit of a break from the from the Gospel of Mark per se. Next week and, and the week following, Darren's going to talk a little bit about uh, who we are and where, where we are and where we see ourselves going, kind of a, a state of the church almost as we come up to our second anniversary. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, about two, two and a half years that we've been gathered, two years in this place. Um, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty incredible what, what the Lord has done. And uh, we're so grateful, so grateful, so grateful. But Darren just wants to kind of rehearse that with you uh, for the next couple of weeks and kind of set a bit of a trajectory as to where we see the next season taking us. Then we're going to take about five weeks and work through a series on relationships. Uh, we're going to spend um, three weeks dealing with a biblical model of what God had in mind when he invented people, uh, what he might have been thinking about when he made men and women, uh, what happened that it went sideways and why it's so troublesome and difficult uh, to live in relationship, uh, then we're going to talk about God's plan to put kind of Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, what he intended things to be like, uh, and, and how the cross creates the space within which that can happen again. And then we'll talk a little bit about how that works itself out uh, in marriage and in singleness, both lived with integrity under the cross and to this in submission to Christ. Um, so, so that's kind of where we're going to be going for the next for the five weeks after that. Then we're going to be into Advent and Christmas, and then it'll be 2015. And time flies, doesn't it? As I get older, it just goes faster and faster and faster and faster. Isn't that scary? It's like, um, but that's the way it is. Um, but this text today is a, is a really important one, and, and putting these chunks together, uh, obviously Mark is up to something in this. There's linking things that get us there. So I want to really sit and focus on this. Uh, Mark kind of comes to a, a, a peak, if you will, in Mark chapter 8, 
where the disciples finally get what they're supposed to get, even though they don't get it with clarity or precision, that they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We don't know what that means. Uh, We think we know what it means, and that's where we're dangerous. But we're willing to say that out loud um, and and, uh, lean into what the implications of that are. And immediately, Jesus begins to define for them again and again and again what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for him to be the Messiah. And what it means for him, he says, uh, three times, the third time we'll look at this morning, is I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given over to the the Gentiles. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And they they are, are completely and utterly unable to hear what he is saying because it doesn't fit their paradigm of what Messiah has come to do, which includes leading us into Rome, uh, taking over the city again from these Roman oppressor occupiers, and setting the nation of Israel back on a course, a trajectory uh, of greatness and glory in the world. That's what Messiah is supposed to do. And Jesus, I know if you stick with us long enough, you'll get the memo. right? And Jesus just keeps pushing back against that misunderstanding that will lead to disaster. If you just think we're going to do what everybody else has always done, get a bigger sword, a bigger stick, and just beat people into submission now in Jesus' name, you're dead wrong. So he has to reinforce again what it means to follow him. So he begins with the same statement. They were on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem. Last week we ended with this statement. Many who are first will be last, verse 31, and the last will be first. Jesus says this over and over. How many of you get just get tired of Jesus saying stuff over and over again? Don't you think he gets tired of having to say it over and over again? Because we're not getting it the first 83 times, right? So he keeps coming at this. First will be last. Last will be first. They were on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Please notice that little snapshot of a picture. They're supposed to be walking with him, but Jesus is walking ahead of them. He is leading the way to Jerusalem. And they are the anchor that is kind of excited about going to Jerusalem because they know what they want to happen there and they're just hopeful that Jesus will get it by the time we get there and fear that he might not. Right? This is the tension of what it means to be a disciple. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who were followed, amazed, why? Because he's going to Jerusalem where he says he's going to die. And yet, they're afraid. So this chaos, this confusion. They took, he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And they are completely and utterly clueless. How do we know? Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him just after he had said this, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
chutzpah. That's what that word is for, right? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we have. And listen to Jesus' response. And you can just see the twinkle in his eye, can't you? He's, he's got a, a grin beginning to play in his face. Well, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? Right? Well, here's the deal. And, and, and you see this. Now, they're starting to kind of pull the overcoats over their shoulders a little bit and kind of shifty-eyed, looking around, making sure nobody... Okay, now look, here's the deal. When you come into your glory, we want that one of us sit... Your choice, your choice, completely your choice, but one of us sit on your left and one of us on your right. Jesus said to them, Guys, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you be baptized? Or are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they replied, Yeah, we're in. Yeah. And Jesus says, well, here's the truth. I mean, you, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to tell you the truth, to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant. That's for those to whom it has been prepared. Now, when the ten heard, so James and John sneak up, you know, they kind of pull Jesus aside. The ten hear that this is what's going on, and they are ticked, right? Why? Because they didn't think of it sooner. Because they all want the same thing, right? They all want to be number one and number... Well, number two and number three. Jesus is going to be number one. But we want to be like A and one. That's what we want. We want to be right up there with Him. Kind of thing. Because He only got two sides. He's only got two sides. Left side, right side. You get it? So He comes in. Uh, They're angry with James and John. So Jesus called them together. Seeing this stuff going on in in these guys. They have walked with Him for three and a half years. They had heard him say over and over and over again. First, last, first, last. Say it with me. First, last. Wax on, wax off. First, last. Come on, guys. Dig in here. Get this. Right? And they're saying, we want to be first. Right? So, you know, and is everybody okay with the sarcastic Jesus? Because here he comes. You know, you guys know, that among the Gentiles, among the pagans, among the Romans, those that they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. Their great ones, first and second, are tyrants. Now, guys, that's not the way it is among us, is it? Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Yours, plural. Servants of y'all. Whoever wishes... Jesus was from Alabama. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is, this is just stunning, isn't it? And, and the problem is, of, of course, and, and I'm, I'm, we're going to deal with the story from 46 on here in a minute because it's going to be an illustration. I want you to remember the question. They come to Jesus. We want you to do whatever you ask. And he asks them this question. What do you want me to do for you? Remember that question. It's going to be important. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, 
we want to be in charge. We think we're ready. We think we need to be measured for a scepter, a crown, a throne, something that would signify how, how ready we are, how significant we are, how great we are. Now, now, now the truth is, these guys are all saying what the other ten are thinking. And they are saying what the most of the rest of us are thinking. Because here's how this works. We want what they wanted. How many of you think, in some measure, the world would be a better place if you or close friends of yours were in charge? Right? Because we know how people ought to behave. I know how people on the freeway ought to drive. I just know. It's a gift. It's a gift. Right? If it would just be better if they would just do stuff. You know, we, we, we hear our congressmen, our senators battling back and forth in Congress. Sometimes I just want to get uh, uh, the, the Palestinians and the Israelis in a, in a room and say, Now you boys, play nice. It'll be better if you just do what I tell you to do. I know what needs to be done. Yes? And if you don't, don't make me come back there. Right? It's, it's the dad in the, in, in, in the back seat. If I have to stop this, you know, we know. Cause it, and, and if somebody would just give us the power to make happen what we know ought to happen, then everything would be all right. This is what we believe. This is what we really believe. That the, Jesus came to get more power so he could beat people up and make them conform to the kingdom. We believe that, don't we? I mean, you don't have to nod or anything. But that's how we run our lives. I mean, listen, listen over the next year and a half, to the next year rather, to the political rhetoric that surrounds getting our guy elected. Just listen. And as the subtext overall, evangelical Christian, what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever side of the... If we get in charge, if we are given power, we will set things right. Anybody recognize that tone? And Jesus is just saying, guys, you can't exercise power like that in my name. That's not what power is for. Power is not to dominate. Power is intended to serve. It's not to get in charge. It's not about position. Leadership isn't about who gets to tell everybody what to do. Leadership is about who gets to descend into greatness by serving more and more and more people and disappearing from the public eye in serving people. Can you do that? Because we still want to do what we want to do, but we just want to do it in Jesus' name. And he just refuses to play our silly little games. You notice that? He just does. So, so he's, he's saying, don't be, don't be spending a lot of time thinking about how you can get a position. Don't be spending a lot of time about how, how you can get to put into a role. Because the truth of the matter, unless your soul has been shaped to the nature of the kingdom, when you get into a position of power, you'll screw it up just as bad as everybody else has. You just will. You just will. And the fact that you believe you won't is demonstration of the wisdom of God in preventing you from that position. Because the Son of Man, the one who can really be trusted with power, 
didn't come to demand service, but to offer service. Oh, Jesus. You might want to think that through. This is going to get you killed. It's going to get you killed. Yeah, that's what I've been telling you. You see? You see? Because the truth is, we do this in the church the way it's done everywhere else. This is why the sarcasm of Jesus just warms my heart. Because I've seen this happen over and over and over again. The question is, how may I serve? Right? Not, when do I get to be put in charge? When do I get to tell people what to do? When do I get to straighten folks out? You see? One of the things that I teach is intro to pastoral care and counseling. And a lot of students sign up for that course at Vanguard, where, where, where I'm teaching. A lot of people in ministry track sign up for that course because they want to learn how to straighten people out. A lot of people go into psych to straighten people out. And also to work out their own stuff, but that's a whole other thing. Right? I mean, because we know how people... I know how marriages are. I know how to say... I know how to... I, know, I, know, I just know. So every once in a while, I get people say to me, will you, you know, because I, I meet with students a lot and, and, and walk with folks. And so I'll get people who say to me, students, I, I, would you be my mentor? My response is always the same. No. I won't be your mentor. I don't believe in mentoring. I'll walk with you. We can do life together a bit. Here's the problem. And, and, well, let me say what the problem is first, and then I'll qualify. The problem is that language of mentor creates a vertical relationship. Just by itself. Just the word by itself creates an environment in which you have a teacher and a learner, a student, a mentor and a mentee. Right? But in the journey we're on, even the most advanced of us is only half a step ahead of everybody else. What are, we, what are we thinking? Do, do you see? Now, I get, I get the language. It's, it's just my tweaky little way of working on my own head here because I have spent huge chunks of my life trying to figure out how to get in charge, how to, how to get enough power so people will do what I want. You just want to slap people silly sometimes. Is it, right? Is that just me? Apparently. Okay, so I'm so glad you're here. And so so, so we, we, we get this. And, and, and Jesus is just saying to us, if you, if you think power is about you being in charge and making people conform even to a righteous standard, you're heading in the wrong course. What is it that enables people to live right? Is it the power of God that will crush them if they don't? Or is it the kindness of God that enables them to risk right? Do do you see? So Jesus is inviting them in their relationships into a radical way of changing the world that he knows is the only way to change the world. So remember when we did the Sermon on the Mount and, the, and, the, and, and, the, and Jesus' response to revenge? Remember? Turn the other cheek. And we listen to that. But, you know, it ends up on a skit on Saturday Night Live. 
we make a big joke. Ha, 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 ha. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Can you think of any better way to end the endless cycle of revenge than for one man, one woman, to absorb the pain of the cycle and just stop it dead in its tracks? This isn't, this isn't philosophy that Jesus is spouting here. This is how he lived and how he invites us who are his followers to live. You've got to have a good, solid sense of who you are to not retaliate in a revengeful manner, don't you? You've got to have a good, solid sense that you were sent to serve and that by that means of losing, enabling others to win, you're on track with what Jesus is about. How many are uncomfortable with this? Nobody else? Just me? Pete? Thanks, man. It is, it, this is disturbing. Because you feel what's happening to our grip on position. It, it, you feel what's happening to our grip on, 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 on place. This is why leadership in the church, I, I, I know there's a good word for that, but it makes me nervous. It, 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 it makes me nervous because we want to lead, even in the church, in the way we are trained to lead on Wall Street, Madison Avenue, in Washington. We want to do leadership in the kingdom of God the way everybody else does leadership. Just kind of dress it up in Jesus' name. You can't. You just can't. It won't get you home in time for dinner if you do that. Jesus is just saying, he's, 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 he thinks he's teaching these guys something they really need to know in answer to their request. You guys want to sit with me? Cool. Here's the dirt I'm sitting in. Pull up a clod. Do you see? Listen to what he says. It's not up to me to decide who sits one on my right, one on my left. I need you to sit with this. This is a little tricky because Mark is real subtle here, but it's really important as a way to make the point. When did Jesus come in to his glory? When was God most fully revealed? When did we see the true, genuine heart of God most completely? It was at the cross. It was at the place of great brokenness. It was at the place where the chest of God was ripped open and we saw the beating heart of love. Now, who was sitting? One on his right and one on his left at the moment of his glory. Two thieves. The least, the last, the lost, the loser, the nobodies. They're the ones for whom it was prepared. They're the ones. Whether they recognize it or not, whether they embrace it or not, who share in unparalleled privilege as the glory of God bleeds out on a lonely hill. You see? What do you want me to do for you? You don't know what you're asking. So we enter into this next story. 
They are on their way to Jerusalem. They come to Jericho as he and his disciples, verse 46, as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. I'm starting to make the connections here. This is the second of the two Miracles of healing. Remember, we talked about the first one in Mark chapter 8, just before you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember how that one turned out? He saw man as trees walking. He needed a second touch to see with clarity what was, what, what was happening, right? Which is precisely the point. So now we have the second miracle, and here we have a blind man who in his blindness sees more clearly than all of the disciples and followers of Jesus to this point. Bartimaeus, we don't know how yet, we'll look at it in a second, gets Jesus. He gets him and decides to take advantage of him. You with me? So here we are. Bartimaeus, they're coming to Jericho. They're on their way out, the, out, out of Jericho early in the morning, early in the morning because the the trip up the mountain to, to Jerusalem is a full day's journey. Jericho, a stopping off place for righteous Jews who would not go south through Samaria. They came down the long way on the river, stopped in Jericho, and then went up the mountain. Uh, and, and remember where we are here. We're in, heading up into Passover. So we're in the mid-spring mid period. We're heading into Passover. Remember again, Passover is the season in which we celebrate our independence from Egypt, our forming as a nation, our day, it's our, Israel's July 4th, if you can imagine that scenario, all right? And they are with the Messiah. Hello? There are more radicals heading into Jerusalem this weekend than any other time in the year. What do you think he's up to? You see? What's the spin? What's the buzz on the street? And you know what it is. They are, they are ready. They are ready to throw off this Roman occupation. They are ready to follow Jesus into victory and beyond. Right? They are ready to go. Ready to go. Ready to go. Jesus is making his way out. Bartimaeus, blind guy, been blind for a long time, has figured out where he needs to be to maximize his earnings potential on a feast day. He is just outside the eastern gate of Jericho as the pilgrims all pass on their way up the hill to Jerusalem. So they get an opportunity to do a work of righteousness which will earn them favor with God when they show up at temple 
tomorrow morning. Do you see? So Barnabas has figured this out. He gets that his position there as a blind beggar gives these people an opportunity to do alms, to do a work of righteousness that will earn them place and position when they get into... So he's playing the system. He's got there. He's got a great spot on the side of the road. right? And now the crowd begins to filter out as the morning begins to heat up. And you can feel the dust in the air and and the excitement because now they've heard that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. Somewhere in Bartimaeus's history, he has heard about Jesus. Maybe he was standing outside when his sighted brothers and sisters were listening at the synagogue and they were instructing in the the Messiah and the prophets of Isaiah. Maybe it was that was going on. We don't know. But at some point, Bartimaeus, having heard the stories of Jesus, linked them to the stories that he grew up hearing and came to a conclusion, this is the Messiah. This is the one. But for whatever reason, Bartimaeus understands something about Jesus that all of the sighted people who are following him to triumph don't get. Listen to what he says. He hears that Jesus is coming, standing on the side of the road. He begins to shout out and say, Jesus, Son of David, so far so good. But notice what he says next. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Not lead me to triumph. Not make a place for me beside you. Not remember me, but extend to me what I don't deserve. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. He recognizes that Jesus is able. He may not even know what mercy on him will look like. Do you see? Because he's not asking for anything yet. Did you notice this? He's just saying, you choose. Have mercy on me. I need help here. I don't even know what to ask for. Right? Now, you need to know something. Bartimaeus is a beggar. That means he lives his waking hours wrapped in a brown cloak that marks him as a beggar. It's his identity. That's how the righteous people knew who were legitimate homeless people and who were just in it for the buck. With me? As a blind beggar, initially also he had a long collar that came up and over his head and hung down in front of his eyes so sighted people would not be exposed to his blindness. The goal of the cloak, the goal of the cowling was to make Bartimaeus disappear. You see? And now, the disappeared one is yelling from the side of the road. And their response is typical. Shut up! Be quiet! Don't yell so loud! (laughs) He'll hear you! What? He'll hear me? And then he just amps it up, right? He just gets a hold of whatever it is that is inside him and begins at the top of his lungs. He recognizes that opportunity is passing by. I'm going to flag it down. Right? And he yells out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops. All the noise in the crowd, everybody's saying, Hosanna, you get him, Jesus. We're right behind you, Jesus. Have mercy on me. 
Bring him here. And now all of a sudden, the crowd is Bartimaeus' best friend. Right? Seconds ago, they were telling him to shut up, go away, be ignored. Right? Now, Jesus has said, come here. So they're saying, hey, 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 get your flip phones out. It's going to be a moment. Because you know that they know what's going to happen. Right? How many? Is this just me? No? Okay, you see? So, 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 so Bartimaeus is up. Now notice what happens. That robe, that thing that has defined him ever since his diagnosis of blindness. You see what he does with it? He gets to his feet. He takes it off and leaves it on the side of the road. And goes identity naked to Jesus. This is who he was. This is what marked him. This is what he has been to this moment. A blind beggar. If you were to ask Bartimaeus yesterday, who are you? He would say, blind beggar. Today, blind beggar is sitting on the side of the road and Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, is making his way to the center of the universe. And Jesus stands in front of him. And for the first time in his entire adult life, Bartimaeus feels the eyes of another man looking at him as if he were somebody. Valuing him as if he were somebody. You see? But then he hears a most disturbing question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been Bartimaeus, this might have been just a bit of a hiccup moment. Because you're standing there, for all intents and purposes, blindness hanging out. And he says, the great man says, the Messiah says, what do you want me to do for you? Figure it out, big boy. Right? Can we just say, though, that whenever Jesus asks a question, it's not because he's looking for information. The question was not for Jesus to find out. The question was for Bartimaeus to speak out what was left of his identity. I want to see. And then Jesus, just as casual as you can possibly imagine, says, Oh, okay. Your faith has made you, and uses an interesting word, whole, shalom. Your faith has made you complete. Now, go your way. Instantly, his eyesight was restored. And what did Bartimaeus' way become? The way of Jesus the way of Jerusalem, the way of the cross. That's what happens when you see clearly. You will follow Him wherever He goes. There's no other game in town. Here's the question I'd like to leave with you tonight, this afternoon as we finish up comes in two parts. What are you ready to leave in a pile 
on the side of the road. The way you've known, the way you've negotiated life, the way everybody's related to you, the way you've managed your blindness. What are you ready to leave behind? Second, as you stand in front of him, I want you to hear his words. Just circle around inside your soul. What do you want me to do for you? What do you really, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? What would you answer? What does that question reveal of the center of your heart? This morning I'm going to ask you just to sit with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. And let's just spend some time on this. If, as you're ready to, you want to make your way to one of the crosses, somebody will be there to pray with you. Somebody will be there to, to, to walk this part of the journey with you. But let's not rush through this. Let's just sit. What are you leaving behind? And what do you want Him to do for you? And what then will be the way that you walk when He does? Lord Jesus, we just take a moment we set ourselves before you and we just want to sit with that hard, hard question what is the center of our need what is the center of our brokenness what is that identity that has got us this far but just isn't enough to get us home that we need to leave just behind And let your way become our way. Lord, please help us to be honest. We invite you by your Spirit to search our hearts as we sit.